This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest for this Advent series, this Talk of Peace, is Peter Laffin. Peter, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And happy Advent to you. Now, you're a convert from atheism to Catholicism. That can't be something that happened overnight. So can you talk about your upbringing? Was church ever a part of your childhood? My father is a Christian, and he was when we were young, and he taught us who Jesus was. We went to something, I have fuzzy memories of going to something that was like a born-again Bible study kind of thing where we would sit in a circle and occasionally sing songs. I can't really say that I gained too much of it for the long term. My mother, I never heard her talk about faith, and I never really knew what was going on in the background there. They were both lapsed Catholics. So we got, my siblings and I, we got something like a vague introduction to Christianity, which by the time I'd become a teenager, I'd fully rejected. And then when I went to study at SUNY New Paltz, which is our incredible coincidence uh, connection, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. It really is. Like, we live in different parts of the nation right now, but in preparing for the interview, I found out you're a New Paltz grad, as am I. We grew up basically 20 miles away from each other, so it's pretty funny. Not a big school, so it's an incredible coincidence for everybody listening. When I got there, I was studying philosophy, and I was very deeply interested in arguments against the existence of God. And so I tried to read everything I possibly could that could disprove the existence of God. It was an idea, I remember you know, being an undergraduate saying in this embarrassing way, it's not just that I don't want to believe in God, it's that I don't want him to exist. I was very along with the Christopher Hitchens line of God, if he does exist, he's a big bully and is a, a narcissist and all these other things. And I thought it would just be a terrible idea if God existed. And I was, I was very angry at the idea of God. I didn't yet understand that all of that anger implied belief. So I said, you can't be angry at something that doesn't exist. And yet I was really, really mad at the idea of God. And it wasn't until after I graduated, until after I'd read everything I possibly could to disprove God, Bertrand Russell was another big hero of mine then, that I found belief and I didn't necessarily come to it by convincing myself, but I do give those atheist writers, I still give them some credit in my mind for helping sort of till the soil of my mind. It was important for me, and I understand now it was important for me to go down that route and see what, I see the best of what the other side has to offer so that when I came to belief, I'd be strong in it and understand how to defend it. It didn't happen overnight. It's a very long story. And I'm always a little cautious talking about it, to tell you the truth, because when we talk about conversion, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the story. And I know that I'm not the center of the story. I know Jesus is the center of the story. I know I'm not the main character. I know I'm, I'm not the light. I'm just the moth. I was just attracted to it. And the main story here is Jesus and what he did for us and how that reflects the love of God. So, yeah, telling a conversion story, it's a, it's a bit tricky in that regard. I don't want to make, this isn't a story about me climbing a hill, me climbing a mountain. This is about me finally, after Jesus hunting me down for I don't know how many years and through how many different trials, me finally saying yes. Yeah, one of those trials that you went through is sort of the restless heart, the anxiety. So can you 
pinpoint a time in your life when anxiety started ramping up and became sort of a shackle? Yeah. So I suffered from terrible anxiety as a young man. And the thing about anxiety that I think a lot of people don't realize is that the worst symptom of it is that it makes you alone. Anxiety makes you focus on yourself, think of yourself, and keeps you inside your own head. And as we know, as Catholics, as Christians, when we are focused at ourselves, it's a pretty miserable state. That's not where Jesus wants us. Jesus wants us focusing outward. He wants us focusing on the other. An incredible thing, when God became man, when he incarnated into man, he gave us this image of the cross. And this is, here, here we have the ultimate expression of the divine, of the universe. The creator and sustaining force of the universe says, here's the one thing I have to say to you. It's self-sacrifice. It's don't look at yourself. Do things for the sake of others. That's the best we can do. Loving somebody else, willing somebody else is good. That's the highest we can possibly go. And that's the opposite feeling of the inward self-looking that we feel when we're in the grip of anxiety. And so faith was very liberating for me from anxiety because it forced me to look outward toward something else, toward Jesus, toward the love of God and toward the love of my neighbor. But it's not just a therapeutic thing either. And here's another tricky part about talking about this aspect of conversion. I tell my friends, yeah, I feel so much better, but that's not why I'm doing this. That's actually just a byproduct. I, I'm Catholic now because I believe it and I'm totally convinced of it and I'm in love with the light of God. The fact that that makes me peaceful is a byproduct of that, which is a useful thing. And I want you to know about it, but it's not the, the center of this. On this journey, you know, going back to before I converted, yeah, I was a mess. I had a hard time being in any social situations. I was so focused on the things coming out of my mouth. I was so focused on how I was being observed, how I was being evaluated by other people. And it's, it's living, it was this almost extreme version of living on the surface of being shallow. And I think that's where, I think that's where a lot of people find themselves today. As somebody that has also suffered from anxiety, it really can be crippling. And I love what you said about faith is not the remedy to anxiety, but it sure helps, you know, but the rest of the journey for you, it was a trip to a doctor's office that also helped. And can you tell that story and how that just led to meeting a priest and everything else? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm still trying to understand how this all happened because it was all, believe me, when I told everybody in my life I was converting to Catholicism, they were all like, huh? <laughs> it was the exact last thing. Were they horrified Anybody, or? Uh, mildly, yeah. Um, some people <laughs> I knew, sure. I remember my mother, who was just happy I was doing well, but she was just scared. She was like, what does this mean now? Was, <laughs> you know, all these different things, he's miserable. Catholic? Okay, so I had gone at SUNY New Paltz, I had gone on campus to get my anxiety treated. And I was seeing this one doctor who wasn't really helping. And I was coming back again and again and again, because my anxiety just wasn't being treated. And I was just feeling worse and worse and worse. And not to, this is tough to talk about, but it's important to talk about. I was really miserable. It really bogged me down. And there were times I was in such suffering that I thought, you know, it would be easier to just kind of be done with all of this. It would be easier to get rid of the pain. And also maybe it'd be easier on everybody in my life who's always worried about me if I just wasn't here anymore. And so I was in this sort of desperate cycle of going back and forth to the doctor and saying, no, this didn't work. No, this didn't work. I need help. And finally, the head doctor on campus at SUNY New Paltz, 
he didn't see patients normally, but he saw that this crazy kid was coming in and out every day and in a really bad way. And he told the other doctors who worked underneath him, you know, I'll take care of this one because there's something strange going on here and I'll, I'll step in. And it was very unconventional how this doctor treated me. His name, I call him Doc. My family does now. He's an angel to us. He still lives just outside of New Paltz. We all call him Doc. His name is Peter Houghton. Uh, saved my life. And how he went about helping me, we wouldn't meet in his office. He would take me out for dinner to a local diner. He would sit and he would just absorb my insanity. He would just buy me a dinner and just listen to me. That's amazing for a doctor to do that with a patient. Yeah, he saw something in me. I asked him, what did you see in me? Why did you take me on this little special, special trip, a special treatment? And he said, well, I felt like you were done doing it your own way. And you might actually be open to listening to me. And so he would take me out. We'd have these really great informal meetings where we would just talk and he would just mostly listen to me, give me a little advice here and there. And doing this enough times, he became something like a friend to me. He was not a doctor, but more of a mentor. And I always wanted to hang out with him. He was infectious. He was joyful. And I felt good around him. I didn't feel good around anyone else. And it had been a long time since I felt good around other people. You know, if you suffer from anxiety, you don't feel good when you're being looked at. This guy had no judgment on me. He was just listening, open ears, and, and total love. And so I want to hang out with him all the time. And one day, we were actually in his office when this happened. I said, do you want to get together Sunday? And he said, well, okay, after I go to Mass. It's funny, he's British Jamaican, so he's got this really funny accent. He would call it, we've got to go to Mass. I've got to go to Mass. And I thought, okay, first of all, I don't know what that is okay, that's a Catholic church service. Okay, that's weird. You know, you're such a good guy. I thought Catholics were all awful, like the worst <laughs> of and, but it's, I wanted It's amazing groups. how many people think that. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. That was, you know, 20 red flags shoot up at once. Like all the worst, the suspicion of Catholics, it's so funny. So I'd ask them, okay, can I go with you? You know, I'll go with you. I'll sit with you. I just want to hang out with you. And he's, he became so happy just at that. I'll never forget the look on his face. Like, oh, like in his mind, it was, I got him. I know if I bring him there, I got him. So I became something of a, of a habit. I, I had had some moments in the church where internally I had some of my doubts, some of my anger sort of worked themselves out. I remember being very broken down by the vision of Jesus on the cross. I remember being very, I remember all of my atheistic arguments shrink shrivel it was like the the shrink wrap just nothing because look at that that's love what am i doing what have i been doing what have i been doing to my family to my friends with all of this selfishness and self-centeredness and that really that broke me down and we probably went to mass together three four months before i kind of broke down and decided okay everybody here is happy i love this this funny little priest guy Father Barnabas, who we'll talk about because he's, you know, another one of the most important people in my life. And you all seem happy. I love being here. I'll do this. Okay. What do I have to do? And they put me through RCIA. And a year later, I was baptized and wow. gave him my first communion in a, in a white gown. It was, I, I was a bad kid, like really a bad kid too. Like I was really into, I was a musician. I was playing concerts all the time and into some not good, healthy stuff. And to see my family sitting out there looking at me in this white gown, getting baptized at 24 years old. Again, it was, it was comical the most. Yeah, that's the story of Doc. Did you notice at that point or over those 
months and years, did you notice peace creeping in? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was unmistakable. I carried so much for so long on my back without being able to, to really talk about it. And there was no place ever before faith, before conversion, there was nothing to do with all of these bad feelings. There was no place to put my anxiety. And, and I think when I was going back and forth from the doctor's office to try and get it healed and it wasn't working, there were techniques, right? There were things that the doctors would tell me, there was medication given to me, but there was nothing ultimately to do with the anxiety. There was no meaning for it. And once you get into the life of the church, when you get into the life of the faith, when you figure out, and for me, it was very elementary stuff, figuring out at mass, when do I stand? When do I sit? When do I kneel? When do I wave at everybody else and wish them peace? Being in that cycle, in that ritual, okay, here's where we put all of those things. This is the place where we, where we exercise all of the heavy things of life. And we make meaning from it. We make sense of it. It's funny. I've spoken to so many people who've fallen away from the faith, older folks, 60, 70 years old, you know, from that sort of 70s generation where we've seen that great drop off in church attendance and practice. One of the reasons they left is they hated the ritual of it. They thought they were just doing it because they had to do it and to look good. And I always tell them that is the best part. That's what saved me, losing myself, because when you're anxious, you're focused on yourself losing myself into the ritual of the movement, of going to confession, of receiving communion. I would say that the peace that came from that is something that, yeah, even now when I try to explain it to people who don't practice, like it's, it's food, it nourishes me. So there is, yes, belief, belief in God coming from a place where I didn't believe in God. Belief in God is a wonderful thing. It's, it's powerful for your inner peace. Believing in Jesus is powerful for your inner peace. Becoming a Catholic, being part of a community. Yeah, you get peace slowly through that. But really, it's the beauty of the liturgy, the slowness, and the sinking into this ancient, otherworldly space. It just chisels away over time at all the things that hang on to you, all the barnacles of your soul. It kind of chips away at it. I'd say that's where peace really came in. Yeah, it's God working on you all the time, yes. all of us. So talk about Father Barnabas and how does he play into your conversion? And, and I'm assuming you stayed in touch with him over the years? I did. I did. Incredible man, Father Barnabas. By the time I met him, he must have been over 75, pushing 80. And long, stringy, white beard, Capuchin Franciscan, so the brown cassock and sandals. And you could see, you know, his yellowed toes. And he was really old and kind of, he was a Franciscan. He, he didn't really take care of himself. But this man was absolute pure love. He was, he was to me. And in the beginning, I, I remember seeing him like, wow, I'm not really, this is a priest? I thought priests were really smart and really impressive. This guy, he wasn't an intellectual powerhouse. I love saying this. I love reminding Doc of this, that he had two homilies. And <laughs> he would either do homily A or homily B. No matter what the readings were, he would come back to the exact same message. And it was reverence for the Eucharist. That was the most important thing. So any any single homily in the world will come back to, and that's why we need to reverence the Eucharist. Nice. Talk about this great cycle and the importance of prayer. And Father Barnabas still, to me, see, he passed away in 2013. He's still a great friend to me. And what he did for me, and what I think so many priests do that don't get credit, that don't make the headlines, 
he just, he did what Christ did on the cross. He put other people first. And anytime I needed anything, he was there with a big hug and a big smile and tell a joke. And then whatever I needed, he would give. He was a beautiful, wonderful priest. Some coincidences later in life. Here's a crazy story. So you and I went to the same college, mm -hmm. even though we've been across different states. Incredible coincidence of us meeting. My wife, who I had met three years ago now. We've been married for a year and four months. So she was in California when we met. She was living in California, and I was living in Colorado, so far away from here. And we got engaged. And we decided, okay, when we get married, we want to move back east so we can be near our families. We both have really strong families. Mine's in Poughkeepsie. Hers is in Long Island. It is a week before our wedding, and it's the day our parents finally met. And it turns out, and they realize this, they put this together in the car ride on the way to Westerly, Jenny and her mother, that they knew Father Barnabas really, really well as kids. This is days before our wedding. It turns out that my wife, Jenny, her confirmation sponsor was Father Barnabas's niece. Oh my gosh. Really close family friends. We had already planned on having an announcement for Father Barnabas at the wedding mass for the prayer for the people who couldn't be here. It's my grandmother and Father Barnabas, the two most important people in the world who weren't there. And everybody on her side of the family, oh, we have a Father Barnabas? What? <laughs> and to me, I, I had this great image of him enjoying himself at us realizing that that connection had been made. So when you told me you're from New Paltz and New St. Joseph, it was like, oh, okay, sure. Here, here he goes again. That's so funny. How was his hand involved in us meeting in these past few weeks? It's amazing. I don't know. He led me to my wife somehow. When we were planning out, we're in Advent, and we wanted to get somebody on How We See It that could talk to us about peace. So I started doing research, and you know, some names were coming up, and... I actually reached out to a priest out in California, of all things, and it just didn't work out and everything. And then I came upon your story, and it was like, yep, there it is. <laughs> and within minutes, we were communicating. Yeah. So, yeah, Father Barnabas might have been messing around. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. He he delights in my—I don't know why he loved me so much. I'll, I'll never know. I, I'll know when I see him in heaven. He delights in my good health and in my closeness to Jesus. And so I know any opportunity— he can to help bring me to either of those eventualities. I know he's eagerly doing it just like he did when he was on earth. Beautiful man. Let's talk a little bit about your work. Your work has appeared in National Catholic Register, Washington Examiner. By the way, if I haven't mentioned, you are a writer, the American spectator, the American thinker. What is life like as a writer with deadlines and all of that? And how do you keep peace when you're dealing with deadlines? Oh, it's definitely a challenge. I think my wife helps me keep peace. She is always there to give me perspective. It's an interesting career for somebody who has suffered and still to an extent suffers from anxiety. So I'm a regular contributor at the Washington Examiner. And so I'm writing pieces once or twice a week on hot button issues, politics, culture, faith. And a lot of people are reading it. And I don't know if you've been on the internet, but comments can be pretty <laughs> nasty and things like that, that attempt to rob you of your peace. And this, there is the deadline. And every time you do something, you know that if you make a mistake, it's going to be in front of thousands of people. And that, so God loves to give us the exact things that we need to find a deeper peace. He never allows us to be satisfied with the peace we think we have. And so he gives us these challenges that are perfectly suited to who we are. Okay, so you suffer from anxiety. I'm going to give this to you. 
this really high pressure, deadline driven, very public thing to do with your life so that you remember to keep returning to me. And if I didn't give this to you, you might've gotten comfortable. You might've thought, okay, I've gotten life figured out. I have my peace now, but it doesn't work that way because time is constantly moving. We're constantly changing. God wants us to keep searching for him. He wants us to keep saying yes to him. And so this challenge that he's given me, I try to understand it in those terms as best I can. That was a beautiful way to put it. He keeps challenging us. Mm -hmm. My experience in journalism is it can be very painful, very annoying. I have faith that God is using it to work on me. I think just the fact that you are sharing your personal stories in your writings is huge because you don't realize how many thousands of people are, well, even today, listening to this today, there are people, I guarantee you, that are struggling with anxiety and other issues, and they're hearing your story, and they're realizing that there is hope out there. There is peace out there. Oh, yeah, there is. God gives us what we need. Our job is to accept what he's given us. Our job is to return it to him. And every time that we do, every time our peace is robbed from us and we return it to God, and we say, God, here is my disorientation. Here is my anger. Take it. Every time we do that, we fall deeper in love with the light of Christ. Every time we do that. And so it's, there's nothing useless about our anxiety. There's nothing useless about our pain. It is all useful to growing in relationship with the creating and sustaining force of existence, which is the reason we're here. That's why we're here. That's why we have a life. We don't have a life to become anything particular on this planet. The ultimate reason that we have this life is to grow that relationship. And so he gives us what we need for that. We have to remember that there's something to do. Tell us, before we go, do you have a website? Where can people learn more and read some of your writings? You can follow my columns at the Washington Examiner. Usually my columns come out on Wednesday or Thursday mornings. I will have a piece coming up in the National Catholic Register next week. And a number of things that I am working on a book about evangelization that will hopefully be done next year. And you follow me on Twitter. That's probably the best place to follow me, play-by-play, play, and that's at Peter M. Laffin. Okay, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Deacon Mike, this was such a pleasure, and my brother, it's so good to meet you. Nice to meet you too, neighbor. Our guest today is Peter Laffin, and this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash how we see it.